Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric. And I'm Gabriella. Join us as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. Hello and welcome to another House of David podcast. For those of you who are new to House of David, we are a teaching ministry that helps Christians understand their biblical heritage and connection to Israel. My name is Gabriella, and I am really looking forward to today's discussion with Pastor Eric. Hi. Hi, Eric. So last month, we talked about the Jewishness of Jesus, how his identity relates to us, the church, and how all of this connects us to his kingdom. Today, we will be talking about the significance of Israel and why we as Christians need to understand this. So previously, we discussed the significance of the Old Testament and the Jewishness of Jesus and why this is, this is important for Christians to understand. This next topic is equally important. Pastor Eric, explain to us the significance of Israel to Christians. Yeah, it's an extremely important topic, but it's also rather complicated and it's actually even somewhat controversial. So many of these issues stem from improper theology concerning Israel's connection to the church and ultimately to God's kingdom. And when I say Israel, I'm talking about both the land and the people. So we need to understand that the Jewish people and the land of Israel are inseparable. In Isaiah 62, verse 4, it says, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the, light, the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. You make a very important point about the land. Um, you know, according to a new survey that came out last year in the Jerusalem Post, only about 7% of evangelical Christians have visited Israel but they often feel deeply connected to the land once they get there, mainly, obviously, because Jesus was born there, lived and ministered throughout the Galilee and around Jerusalem. But they often don't seem to feel any connection to the Jewish people. Um, because of that, an overwhelmingly large number of Christians have somehow come to believe that the church is a new spiritual Israel that doesn't need the land of Israel and replaces the Jewish people with a new group, essentially the church. Yeah, those numbers aren't great and are substantially lower amongst the younger millennials. And so, you know, here's some disturbing numbers from Christianity today. Three quarters, or about 77% of evangelicals 65 and older, say they support the existence, security, and the prosperity of Israel. And it drops to 58% among younger evangelicals, those 18 to 34. You know, four in 10 younger evangelicals, about 41%, less than half, have no strong views about Israel, and they're less sure that Israel's rebirth in 1948 was actually a good thing, much less a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Wow, those numbers really are shocking. So Eric, help me and our listeners understand what is going on with the church in America and why Christians need to recognize and understand Israel's significance. Yeah, sure. I think there are a few things going on here that to some degree are culminating in both this dramatic falling away from faith and a dramatic shift towards humanism, mainly secular humanism. Now, some of the shifting stems from errant theologies that infiltrated the church more than a thousand years ago. 
causing the church to drift away from its biblical foundation, which of course includes Israel and the Jewish people. And the other cause is the radical influence of liberalism in the culture and in the church that began several centuries ago. So let me start explaining several early influences on the church. Now, some scholars correlate the church's separation from the Jewish people to the Nicene Creed. It was written at the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and yet it's still clear from Scripture that anti-Israel sentiment had already infiltrated the church in the first century. And that's why Paul wrote the book of Romans, specifically chapters 9 through 11. And I've also found the same rejection pattern in the Coptic church that was established in Egypt and Northeast Africa around 42 AD. So there's this chronology of the division in the early church writings by a man by the name of Tertullian, and it's titled An Answer to the Jews. Now, in short, Tertullian was born in Carthage in North Africa around 150 AD, and he penned most of his works in Latin and composed apologetic writings to the Romans and other essays defending Orthodox Christianity. He's considered to be one of the fathers of Christianity. And he's also one of the most frequently quoted writers of what's called the pre-Nicene church. So in short, what he said was that with the birth of Jacob and Esau, Tertullian believed that God intended to create two distinct people groups. One group from Jacob became Israel, who still remains the subject of God's Mosaic law, the Old Covenant, and Esau, the father of the Gentiles, which comprises the church, who are only subject to God's grace. So this thinking led many to believe that God has two distinct people groups, an earthly people, Israel, and a heavenly people, the church. Essentially, they believe God divorced national Israel and has somehow taken away their covenants and given them to the church. And they see the church as Abraham's true spiritual seed that replaces national Israel. So to them, the church has transcended and fulfills the terms of the covenants that God gave to Israel, which essentially Israel lost because of disobedience to God. And of course, this would stain God's unchanging nature as his written word concerning his eternal and unbreakable covenant promise for the Jewish people simply cannot be broken. God just, he just doesn't change. So why don't you read for us Jeremiah 33 verses 25 and 26. If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. That's Jeremiah 33 verses 22 through 20, uh, sorry, 25 through 26. Yeah. Well, clearly God's covenant with Israel is unbreakable. But as the gospel turned more towards the Gentiles, Christian thought began to redefine scripture as the correlation and fulfillment of prevailing Greek and Roman philosophy. And so we see that Christian theology in the second century was not systematic, hadn't been really defined or written down yet. And theologians such as Justin Martyr, Theophilus, and others attempted to reconcile Greek thought. So the expanding and predominantly Gentile church gradually became more and more distant from its early roots that initially saw Christianity as the fulfillment of biblical Judaism. 
and the leadership, they sought ways to reconcile this increasing chasm between the unbelieving Jewish people that were following rabbinic Judaism and this vastly expanding number of Gentile Christians who held little knowledge or even interest in their Hebraic foundation. Now, around 130 AD, Rome destroyed Jerusalem. He actually, they actually paganized the entire city. They killed and enslaved and exiled the Jewish people. And Jerusalem was no longer the spiritual center of both Judaism and Christianity. And essentially, Israel ceased to exist as a nation, as God's chosen and covenant nation. So the church leaders really could not have foreseen a time when God would restore the Jewish people to the land he promised to Abraham. But their understanding of God's dealing with Israel was misguided, driven by an underlying hatred for the Jewish people. In this dialogue here we see around 160 AD, Justin Martyr argued that the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem were God's judgments on Israel for rejecting Christ. And he stated that the Jews justly suffer and the the Jewish cities were rightly burned with fire. He also described the Jews as desolate and forbidden to go to Jerusalem. And he said, quote, accordingly, these things have happened to you in fairness and justice, for you have slain the just one, and now you reject those who hope in him. You know, it's interesting and, and truly painful to realize how far back anti-Semitism actually goes. And the intensity of the hatred is so irrational that I believe it can only be spiritual in nature, driven by Satan who hates that which God loves. Yeah, it really is. And unfortunately, after the first century, there was no more Israel. And the Jews had almost become a forgotten people, except that the Bible spoke continually about the restoration and return from global exile into the land that God had promised to Abraham. So the church began to have these problems with its both interpretation of the Bible, but also Christian scholars were looking for ways to reconcile the kingdom of God apart from Israel. Again, Israel no longer existed. And yet the second epistle of Peter urged Christians to wait patiently on the Lord for his return. And the first epistle of Clement, written by Pope Clement I in around 95 AD, criticized those who had doubts about the second coming of Jesus because it had not yet occurred. Another gentleman, Bishop Papias of Peropolis, favored a premillennial position in the second century in his five-volume work. So it's clear, the clear implication from the scripture and other non-canonical writings of the early church is that Jesus' return was imminent. So they expected him to return at any moment to set up a physical earthly kingdom in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. But when would this kingdom actually happen, and what would it look like? Well, that's the big underlying question, because the early, very early church was comprised of predominantly Jewish leadership, and so it was premillennial in its views about the kingdom. And they understood that God's kingdom was intricately connected to Israel. I mean, even the sages, the rabbis in the Talmud taught that the creation would exist for 6,000 years before the universal Sabbath and the 1,000-year Messianic era. But all of that was about to change. One of the most influential fathers of the early church was Augustine of Hippo. He lived around 354 to 430 A.D., He's also known as St. Augustine. He was a theologian and philosopher of Berber origin and became the Bishop of Hippo, Regius, in 
North uh, Roman Africa. So this is Northern Africa. So in his book, City of God, he redefined his understanding of the 1,000-year millennial kingdom, spiritualizing it and the prophecies in the Bible that were essentially written for Israel. Now, it's interesting because Augustine actually had previously viewed the millennium as a literal future 1,000 years, but then later changed his beliefs, claiming the doctrine was carnal. And that seems to have happened because he adopted Gnostic ideas. And that's a whole other subject. But he believed that the Gnosticism essentially believes that the flesh was sinful and sin was hereditary or transmitted from parent to child through physical procreation. So in contrast, Augustine imagined the church as a spiritual city of God without sin, distinct from this material earthly city, Jerusalem, that was full of carnal sin. So his new beliefs were that the church saints presently reigned with Christ on earth in some inferior way, but that one day in the future, in the fullness of Christ's coming kingdom, those whom God the Father had blessed will reign in a superior way to this present age. So in, in his mind, God's kingdom and his people, the church, were entirely spiritual and would remain so until Jesus returned and created a new heaven and earth. In his writings, he wrongly presumed the millennium began at the first advent of Christ and incorrectly predicted that the binding of Satan would be complete by 650 AD and that Christ would return at that time. That would be the second advent. Of course, neither of these things happened. So Augustine's false theology helped shape the practice of biblical interpretation that would lay the foundation for the Roman Catholic Church and modern Christian thought. And he redefined Christianity's arrival and replacement for these ancient Greek philosophers. And his amillennial theology became the prevailing doctrine of the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Martin Luther, later in the Reformation, also rejected the future millennial kingdom and interpreted Revelation chapter 20 as a description of the historical church rather than the end of history. And so after the Reformation and for then almost 1,500 years, amillennialism remained the dominant theology for most Christians in the West. And these theologies have incorrectly led many Christians to believe that God's future kingdom is exclusively spiritual and that all prophecy concerning Israel's return is allegorically only a picture of the church. That or they see Israel as some type of a shadow of the church, with the church being the complete fulfillment of God's promises that were initially given to Israel. So in other words, they believe that God has made all things new, hence the church has become a, quote, new Israel, replacing the old apostate people of God with a new one. And since God divorced Israel, he has taken all of her covenant promises and given them to the church. And again, this theology, we've talked about this before, is called supersessionism, but is commonly referred to as replacement theology. What is most disturbing about this aspect of church history and theology is that it has led to centuries of anti-Semitism and persecution of the Jewish people. We will dive deeper into God's eternal promises to the Jewish people in a later episode. But right now, I would like to read a passage from Isaiah that so clearly portrays God's plans for his people Israel. So this is Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 8. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. 
The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandon you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Yeah, this is a great passage that really reveals God's everlasting love for Israel, for the Jewish people. And he's a grieving husband who is longing to reconnect with his bride. You know, but this verse also gives us a glimpse into God's judgments against Israel for rejecting Christ. And he says, you know, for a brief moment, I abandoned you. And, you know, to me, it speaks of what Paul calls the time of the Gentiles or the times of the Gentiles. And classic dispensationalists would see this as the church age where God is currently bringing his salvation to the nations. But then at the end of the age, God will return to Israel and fulfill his salvific promises for her. So how have things changed more recently and what has that done to the church in America? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, throughout church history, the church has sought to understand Israel's place in God's kingdom. And the reestablishment of the state of Israel in 1948 has made this issue all the more pressing. But the separation of the church from its Hebraic origins drove it into this period of great darkness. And it was only exacerbated by an abyss of unbelief and skepticism caused by what's called the Enlightenment period. It started in Germany around the 17th century. And that opened up in the West, culminating in self-centeredness, self-worship, and this rise in humanism during the Renaissance period. So until the 17th century, Bible interpretation, what's called hermeneutics, was held in a special category that would have been similar to how people interpret biblical laws. In other words, they were held to these strict legal absolutes. And this began to change with the rise of liberalism in the early 1800s, when this German philologist, George Ast, introduced philosophical interpretations of the Bible. That was around 1778 to 1841. Now, the problem with philosophical interpretation was how to ascertain the text's objective meaning, which was determined through the interpreter's subjective personal filter. So in other words, rather than using strict literal interpretation of the Bible, where scripture had to be understood through other scriptural verses, the Bible could be reinterpreted by one's personal relative truths rather than God's absolute truth. And if contradictions arose, it was the fault of the text not the interpreter. Now, of course, we know that human reason is limited and often contradictory. So a serious consequence of liberal interpretation was increasing doubt about the genuineness of the Bible, especially biblical prophecy. And the struggle against eschatology was part of liberalism's massive reconstruction of the Bible. So in his writing, The Crisis of the European Conscience, this gentleman Paul Hazard traces the intellectual shattering of the Christian foundations to the end of the 17th century. And then later, what's called higher criticism of the biblical text tried to understand the Bible solely as a human-inspired historical document. And so this created a few obstacles that inhibited the correct interpretation of the Bible. So, for example, we speak a different language than the Bible was written in. The Bible was written predominantly in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic, and of course in Greek. Also, we live approximately, you know, two millennia later, and many cultural changes have occurred. 
And with these cultural changes, we now bring different expectations to the text. And also, lastly, we read the Bible with significantly different literary expectations and other forms of literature. In other words, we don't really read or shouldn't read the Bible the same way that we would read another book. So Christian interpretation of the Bible has employed a liberal understanding of Scripture for over a century now, utilizing a legal and philosophical form of human reason. And from the 1970s, German philosopher Hans Georg Gadamer, around 1900 to 2002, dramatically influenced the biblical philosophical hermeneutics of many contemporary theologians today. So it is not surprising that Protestant theologians are conflicted over their biblical interpretation of Scripture, and even the Catholic scholars accept some diversity in Scripture as long as it stays within the theological traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. So what liberalism has done is create doubts about the authenticity of the Bible, including all of the prophecies concerning Israel. And by rendering the Hebrew Scriptures largely indecisive, the church has accepted a canonical narrative that dismisses Israel as the central people through whom God would bring his redemptive plans to humanity. And these false thoughts originated in the first and second centuries, and they were codified in later false theologies such as amillennialism and have been greatly exacerbated even to this day with liberal thinking. And so in their minds, Israel is irrelevant except for four episodes of human history, which it would include God's intention to create the first two parents, Adam and Eve, the fall of man into sin, Christ's incarnation and the church's inauguration, and the final consummation. And so your question about what is happening in the church today, well, I believe that many issues affecting it, including the introduction of false liberal theologies and philosophical humanistic methods of interpreting the Bible, along with the overall diluting of the biblical narrative, including its message concerning the restoration of Israel and the gospel of the kingdom, is causing many Christians to doubt the purpose and validity of Scripture and to possibly fall away from their faith. And this has dramatically reduced church attendance for decades, especially among the younger generations. So many in church struggle to fit God's biblical purposes for Israel into their worldview of what is a spiritual battle between the forces of darkness and God's covenant people. And if biblical prophecies concerning Israel are misinterpreted and deemed inaccurate or irrelevant, how can we trust anything else in the Bible, including the gospel? I mean, can we actually believe that it is true? And unfortunately, the most recent Gallup poll shows American membership in houses of worship continues to decline, dropping below 50% for the first time in the past 80 years. U.S. church membership was 73% in 1937 when Gallup first started measuring, and it stayed near 70% through the year 2000 before it began to decline to 61% in 2010 and 47% in 2020. Wow, that really is a huge shift. So Paul talked about a falling away that would be one of the signs of the end times. In 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, he wrote, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. 
That's 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 3. Eric, do you think that this might be what we are seeing in the Western church today? You know, it might. And certainly with the rebirth of Israel in 1948, we are definitely closer than ever to the return of Jesus. But, you know, notice in the next verse in the second, in second Thessalonians, Paul talks about the son of perdition, of course, who we know is the Antichrist, exalting himself as God, where? In the temple of God. So why don't you read that for us here, the next verse? In second Thessalonians 2, verse 4, Paul writes about the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, yeah, in one sense, we, the church, are the temple of God. We know that. But Jesus warned about many false prophets arising in the last days. And we read about a temple that is to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, where Jesus, quoting Daniel, said that the daily sacrifices will be resumed. He said in Matthew 24, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So Daniel was telling us about a physical temple that would be constructed during this short reign of the Antichrist, saying in chapter 8, verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, none of these prophecies could be fulfilled without Israel being rebirthed as a nation in 1948. So there is clearly something profound in the Lord's eyes for those from Abraham's natural lineage. Paul said in Romans 11:28 concerning the election they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So this verse implies that Israel is elected, chosen by God. And chosenness is deeply misunderstood because to be chosen means to be entrusted with a role, a task, a mission, or something more significant than yourself. Chosenness infers we have meaning, we have destiny, we have a greater purpose that is God-given rather than self-motivated. Paul said in Acts 13, verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul was actually talking about his mission with Barnabas to go out and be a light to the Gentiles. So divine election carried Israel to a whole new level. She is beloved for the sake of the fathers. And when God assigned Israel her purpose, she became the fulfillment of that purpose in the form of a nation. And her irrevocable calling was and is to be a light to the Gentiles. So Israel's identity is much greater than tribal, ethnic affiliation, or religion. It implies citizenship. And not just citizenship in any nation, but specifically citizenship in the kingdom of Israel. And the children of Israel were promised to inherit the kingdom of God. In a kingdom, the king makes you his subject. Our identity is in the king, and our relationship with him establishes our citizenship in the kingdom. And citizenship in the kingdom of God requires first God's covenant. So in this regard, the Jewish people are unique because they are the only nation on earth to be formed by God's covenants. And second, citizenship requires God's chosenness. And again, the Jewish people are also unique in this regard because they are God's only chosen group that was promised to become his nation and his kingdom. In Amos uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Hear this word, the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. 
But we understand also now that in Christ, the Gentiles, the nations, have also been chosen by God and grafted into Israel. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11. So that the nations might share in all of Israel's covenant promises, together becoming the church. If we spiritualize all these prophecies concerning Israel, as much of the church does through incorrect thinking, or if we wrongly believe that the church replaces Israel, we will not understand God's love and irrevocable calling for the Jewish people and our role as the church in helping to bring them to salvation. We will fail to understand his plans to restore them to the land he promised to Abraham, which he will make the center of his kingdom, and we will fail to recognize the season we are now living in and just how close we are to the return of Jesus. So it sounds like having a proper understanding of the Bible as it relates to Israel is extremely important for the church to understand, especially the understanding of the timing of biblical prophecy. Yeah, exactly. And Jesus pointed to the fig tree as a symbol of Israel's rejection of him as the Messiah, but also the beginning of their spiritual rebirth right before he returned. So Gabby, why don't you read those verses for us in Matthew? Sure. So the first one is Matthew 21, verses 18 and 19. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And then uh, from Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then in Matthew 24, verses 32 and 33, uh, we hear, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Yeah, so I think you can begin to see how imperative it is for Christians to have a proper understanding of theology as it relates to Israel and an understanding of eschatology of the end times as it relates to the return of Christ with his church and the restoration of Israel and the kingdom, the ushering in of the kingdom of God. So in the next podcast episodes, we're going to discuss God's feasts and holy convocations, and we're going to see how these align with his salvific plans for Israel and how these actually align or coincide with the return of Christ and the church. Well, I hope you all enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Pastor Eric, for this truly insightful discussion. Please subscribe to our channel. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to like it and share it with others. We look forward to you joining us next time on House of David podcast. If you have enjoyed this podcast from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you, and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.